All right. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. Today on the line, we have White House Chief of Staff Dennis McDonough, former White House Chief of Staff. He was also the Deputy National Security Advisor in the Obama administration. He is the pride of Stillwater, Minnesota, who got prepared for politics by being one of 11 kids. But most importantly, Dennis is Kari's husband and Teddy, Liam, and Addie's dad. Dennis, it is a joy to have you on the show, man. Thank you for doing this today. Happy to do it, Tommy, and you just gave me a big smile on my face talking about Kari and the kids, I'll tell well, you. Well, I mean, look, man, we all know what your better half is here. So I got to do a trigger warning to Pod Save the World fans because there's some people I interview uh, who are colleagues, but uh, you were a mentor to me and so many other people who worked with you and, and for you at the NSC. So if, if I if it's not a little over the top, you know, you guys know why you've been forewarned. But so <laughs> I wanted to start with the bin Laden operation because you know, as much as has been written about this, I don't know that America will ever stop being fascinated by the story. It was a cathartic moment for so many people who lived through 9-11. And it was an extraordinary example of a bunch of people in the intelligence community and the military and the White House working together. You know, party lines didn't matter. Politics didn't matter. It was just, you know, getting an important mission done. And so you were one of the few people at the White House who worked on this operation, who was briefed on it, who was read in and, and helped develop and advise the president along the way. What was it like for you when you first heard about this intelligence for the first time? You know, what did you guys do after? Did you guys run into John Brennan or Tom Donnellan's office and like lose your minds? <laughs> well, we, I would have been, when I first learned about it, I would have been sitting with John. And, you know, you know he's a consummate professional. And, yeah. and I do recall being... Uh, quite enthusiastic about it, but also being uh, tempered by Brennan and uh, many of our colleagues from the IC who, while they thought they had uh, very good stuff, are not people who are prone to excitement. Uh, They're (laughs) very steady, straightforward, cool customers. So uh, we just kept working it for a while before uh, we rang any bells or anything. You know, sometimes I've said, Tommy, that I feel a little bit like Forrest Gump on that uh, <laughs> on that thing. I, I basically happen to be in the right place at the right time. Guys like John Brennan and then a bunch of people, you know, Bill McRaven, I guess, has uh, been talked about. But a bunch of these people will forever be known only to their colleagues. But these, you know, I, I just happen to be, you know, the right place at the right time to get a chance to work with these guys who are just unbelievably capable. And so... It was a big lucky opportunity for me, but it didn't have anything to do with luck with uh, the hard work that those guys put into it, just painstakingly going through this. The other thing I remember about is John talking about how basically this is something he had been working on really since, you know, early in his career, the Mm mid-90s. So it's a culmination of a lot of hard work for a guy like him and a lot of people uh, throughout the U.S. government who uh, were similarly dedicated. I don't mean to sound overly sappy here, but it is truly an honor to work with those people who are so dedicated, who get no credit. They're like the offensive line of the national security operation. They get uh, beaten down when uh, when they miss a block, but no one really gets to sing their praises. Half of them are anonymous or covert uh, or working behind the scenes, but they're extraordinary people. These are some of the most amazing people too. I mean, the, the skill that they have and just take remuneration for a second, you know, the pay that they've given up to have a, a life and career in government with some of the skills that they bring to the to the table is really remarkable. So it's, uh, I'll join you. If this is being sappy, then I'll join you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and work very far away from their families. Um, so when you guys briefed President Obama on this intelligence, I mean, what, what was his take uh, on the news? 
Well, he similarly is not one prone to uh, overexcitement. But this was something that he, you know, Tom Donnell has talked about this. This is something that the president made very clear to uh, Director Panetta and others uh, from the first days of the administration. That was a major priority for him, staying on top of it. So mm-hmm. I think his reaction was one of uh, great pride in the work of the people who put this together. Uh, but the other uh, reaction he had was uh, making sure that we were tight and that we basically developed this thing in a way that didn't add any additional risk to the people uh, or to uh, the information. And so uh, kind of a traditional Obama reaction, Tommy, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. He said, uh, okay, this looks good, so let's get on it and, and uh, don't screw it up. Yeah, work it. Go get to work. Yeah. So along those lines, I, mean, I remember you guys took incredible pains to prevent anyone else outside a very small circle from learning about this news. I remember they actually turned off People would be surprised to learn that there are cameras in the White House Situation Room so you can see when meetings start and end and break up and sort of who's in there. But those were turned off during some of your deliberations. Did you, Were you guys meeting on this regularly or did you have to go to you know regular business and hurry up and wait and focus on other stuff? Yeah, we were meeting pretty regularly on it, but they did go to great lengths. We did go to great lengths to make sure that we handled it appropriately. I remember the night that it all happened, I, I, I called Kari when it was about to get announced on the news, and I said, you should watch the news mm-hmm. at 10.30. And and she said, well, why? And I said, well, maybe it would give you a sense of why I've been such a jerk for the last, you know, several months. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, it was late. It didn't happen at 10.30. It didn't happen until, like, 11. So she thought I screwed everything up because <laughs> nothing was on TV. She didn't know what to expect, but all she thought was perhaps I screwed it up. Uh, turned out okay. When did the team start creating options for how to capture or kill bin Laden? Like, well, how long was that process? Geez, the dates run together, Tommy, but yeah. the, there are kind of parallel efforts to develop the understanding of uh, where we thought he was and then to develop um, some options. And so it's hard to remember, frankly, uh, if that's weeks or months or mm. days or what. But I do know that these guys went to work on it. And they came back with a lot of really well-developed options that were, you know, that, as you referred to a minute ago, were by necessity developed in uh, very tight quarters and uh, with very necessarily limited access to uh, these things. So Mm -hmm. it was a remarkable bit of business. But I think you also remember that our guys have been doing stuff like this now, Tommy, since, you know, 9-11. Right. And... These are unbelievably capable, committed, patriotic guys, uh, men and women. And so what they're drawing on was not only this uh, particularly good and, and important intelligence, but they're drawing on an amount of uh, experience that is just boggles the mind when you think about how much uh, our guys have done and how many bad guys they've taken off the field. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you remember this, but I, I think a, a couple days before the operation, Ben was working on some big speech that I don't think ever got delivered. And so he was off in hiding in the EEOB in the executive office building somewhere, not in his regular office. And you kept you kept dropping by the lower press office trying to find him. And I remember saying to you, kind of getting annoyed, I was like, Dennis, you know, if you, there's something you need to work on with national security comms, like I can help you out if you want to read me in. You're like, I remember you kind of looked at me and laughed and you're like, I would love to read you in on this, but uh, I got to find Ben first and then, you know, we'll talk later or something like that. <laughs> I, I don't remember that. I do remember being quite even more my anxious and uh, 
shall we say, nervous self on those days. Yeah. So did you go to the White House Correspondents' Dinner that night before the operation? And then did you have to go in? The, like, did you sleep or did you just go in the next day and sort of watch this all unfold? I didn't go uh, to the Correspondents' Dinner. I went to uh, Mike Leiter's wedding. Oh, that's right. And it was terrific. And, you know, Kari tells funny stories about that. But first of all, I was drinking club soda like you read about it. And she's like, what, what is happening here? <laughs> I said, oh, you know, I just really like club soda. Yeah, me too. So uh, anyway, and then if memory serves, Tommy, I don't think I went until the next day. Got it. But it was a beautiful night the night before for Mike's wedding. And, and you know, talk about a good man and uh, somebody who who did a lot Yeah. in the name of the CT fight and in the name of one of the other things that you and I will talk about, which is uh, CVE. Mm-hmm. Uh, over the years. I mean, this is uh, just a terrific guy. Yeah. Same thing. You wouldn't know. I wouldn't know if he's Republican or Democrat. I never asked him. And I don't really care. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, uh, but he uh, just a remarkable guy. Yeah. Head of the NCTC, former, uh, was he a Navy fighter pilot? I think he was in the Navy. I don't know if he's a fighter pilot. Got it. Um, and then he was a U.S. attorney. And then President Bush uh, appointed him uh, as the director of the NCTC, the National Counterterrorism Center, after John Brennan, which uh, when it was initially stood up, it was called the TTIC, the Terrorist Threat Information Center. So guy's given a lot to the country. Yeah. And, and then a great example of an individual who served under Republican and Democratic administrations. And uh, again, like you said, no idea what his politics are, but I'm glad his wedding was fun. So the bin Laden operation was a huge blow to Al-Qaeda. And set them back, and we got incredible intelligence. But I think attention in government, and I think in the public consciousness, quickly shifted to ISIS. And President Obama and the national security team were ramping up efforts to go after ISIS in Syria and Iraq uh, long before the election, and ended up, you know, sort of handing that effort off to the Trump administration. So I'm wondering, from where you sit now, do you have a sense of how that effort is going, or an assessment of, of progress that's being made or not made? Yeah, that, that's a fair question, Tommy. I want to I go back on one story real quick about sure. Lighter, which I think just speaks to this, the importance of transitions and the difficulty of transitions. Mm-hmm. And I remember that Josh Bolton uh, said to Rahm Emanuel and to John Podesta, Rahm being the incoming chief and John being the head of the transition in 2008, he said, look, if you keep one person in the government, you should keep Mike Lighter. Wow. And, you know, that wasn't lost on Rahm and, and John. And you think about, you know, what, like you just said, you know, the public consciousness was much more focused on uh, al-Qaeda in those days. And we were very focused about on that as we went through that transition period. And so uh, it turned out to be a very good piece of advice from Josh, the first of many, by the way. But I think it does speak to this question that you talk about, both the professionalism of uh, the people who operate in this space but also then making sure that you don't leave a seam in that transition period. You know, on on the uh, counter-ISIL fight, you know, there was a good bit of reporting this week because of uh, the trip that uh, Jared Kushner took. Uh, I thought the reporting was useful because Mm -hmm. it gave us everybody a look into it again after, you know, it's obviously throughout the papers every day, uh, but doesn't push to the front page uh, as much as it used to. And so, obviously, the progress in Mosul looks very solid, continuing to make good progress, if, if I understand the paper, the, meet, the press reporting on this, pretty good progress in the effort on Raqqa in mm-hmm. uh, eastern Syria. So, those being the, the kind of the uh, 
the bookends of what they call the caliphate for ISIS, I think that's making very good progress. We've not only the, the those being kind of the eastern end in Mosul and then Raqqa, the western end of what ISIS considers its caliphate or its geographic uh, state. We've made a lot of good progress in the middle over the course of the last 18 months or so, connectivity between those two places. Mm -hmm. And now it's just uh, a question of whether we can close out their presence in those two cities. Seems to be progressing pretty good, Tommy. And then yeah. the big question is going to be, uh, what is the political strategy coming in after that? How do we make sure that locals there, which are uh, in the main dominate, they, these areas are dominated by Sunni, uh, that Sunni locals there feel sufficiently part of the national polity, the national state, for example, in Iraq, uh, that they don't become subjected to or don't become uh, beholden to Sunni extremists who, uh, you know, sing some siren song about some future Sunni state rather than a multi-ethnic state based in uh, throughout Iraq with a capital in, in Baghdad. And that uh, is going to require a lot of diplomatic heavy lifting. Right. That's complicated, obviously, by the situation in Damascus and ongoing tension throughout the region. But our guys have been planning on this for a long time. One guy who did stay over the course of his second transition uh, is a fellow by the name of Brett McGurk. I know all your listeners mm -hmm. uh, know him well. I know you know him yep. well, Tommy. This guy's unbelievable talent. And he's been working uh, very hard at keeping that coalition together and then working very hard at what the political strategy looks like uh, once uh, Mosul and Raqqa are cleared so that, as I say, uh, Sunnis see a future in that region uh, that has them part of a multi-ethnic state in Iraq and a multi-ethnic state in, in Syria. Yeah. You know, I, I thought of you when um, when I started reading those reports about Jared Kushner getting out into the field. You know, I, I think it's rightly mocked. The size of his portfolio is absurd. His lack of experience does not prepare him for this job. That said, you were a guy who got out in the field a lot and took a bunch of trips to Afghanistan and Iraq and places. And, you know, you would do it like I would see you with a packed bag on a Friday night and you would show back up Tuesday morning. And we were like, where the hell is Dennis? Oh, he was in Iraq again. So I do think there's some value to that. And I respect that. But you're right. I mean, you I agree with that. I, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think I, I think that it pushed uh, these questions Back, that is to say, Mosul, uh, the anti-ISIL coalition, you know, the good work of Joe Dumford and, and, and all of our guys, it pushed it back to the front page of the paper. That's, I think that's uh, good for the national interest. Yeah. And then the fact that you, you get out of that building and go see what's happening around the country, not because you're trying to micromanage around the world, but because you want to try to get a sense of what the impact is of the decisions that you make inside that building is very powerful. And I know that's why the why President Obama wanted to get out as much as he did, Tommy. You know that as well as anybody, because mm -hmm. he wanted to see what the impact was of the decisions he was making. And then, it, very importantly, if not most importantly, make sure that the people that are carrying out the policies that he's put in place and carrying them out at great risk to themselves and, as you said earlier, at huge distances from their families, have what they need uh, to get the job done. Yeah. So I think it was really uh, a good thing that he got out there. Yeah. Um, there's no doubt about that. Me too. More Nerdy Foreign Policy coming up on Pod Save the World.
Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show Hysteria is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... (laughs) Uh, You heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. Reclaim your time now that you can listen to four weekly ads-free episodes across Pod Save America and Pod Save the World. There's never been a better time to join Cricket's Friend of the Pod subscription community. The marketing people say that listening ads-free saves you up to two hours of ad listening each month. Imagine the possibilities. You know what you can do with two extra hours a week? You can listen, listen to, two- to more podcasts. Exactly. Ah, two more episodes. That's yeah. two more episodes. Yeah. Get more stuff in your brain. Yeah. Get more stuff in that more brain. More stuff and content in there like, yeah, uh, like you're a foie gras. <laughs> Become a member today. Go to cricket.com slash friends now to learn more. So you mentioned this earlier with respect to Mike Leiter, but you, you spent a lot of time at the White House starting early on in administration working on efforts to combat violent extremism back in the U.S. And I remember you would do a lot of trips locally. You'd go to Minnesota and meet with local officials and community and religious leaders. I'm wondering if you, what takeaways you had from those that work. What strategies work? What worries you about this growing trend of people who are being radicalized online and at home without ever going to Syria just because of ISIS's propaganda? You know, and without sort of the traditional hallmarks of someone who might be easily identified as radicalized. Yeah, I mean, this is the I think this is a big challenge for us. And and the fact is that um, the ability to move the propaganda and uh, the information and this remarkable bits of information and, and, you know, video footage and everything that, you know, extremists are using to prey on. Uh, people will be susceptible to this is is uh, not the next big challenge it's the big challenge mm-hmm. for us because you know the the same uh, technology that allows you and me to talk just like this uh, all the way across this country allows the bad guys to get right into you know smartphones and the laptops of uh, susceptible people here yeah so look I think the what what we think works is uh, what's worked in this country's forever 
which is when you come here, uh, you become Americans. Yeah. This is true for me as a you know the grandson of four immigrants as it is for anybody else. And one of the things we know that doesn't work is if we somehow try to break that tradition. Because when you break that tradition, uh, you end up with individuals isolated, isolated, feeling cut out, and then being susceptible to these bad guys. That's one. Two is we should be doing a better job, frankly, than we're doing of keeping uh, access to guns out of the hands of people who are demonstrating tendency to become extremists. Yeah. You know, this is, you know, the the Democrats used to say up on Capitol Hill, no fly, no buy. If you're on the no fly list, you shouldn't be able to buy a gun. It strikes me as highly commonsensical. Yeah, um, <laughs> me too. But perhaps overly so. <laughs> and then just making sure that people know uh, families, community leaders, uh, know what to look for. Uh, I'm really proud of the work uh, in Minneapolis uh, for, you know, a variety of reasons. One of the biggest populations of Somali refugees in, is in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. But there's also a big Somali community in San Diego and a big Somali community in, in Columbus. So one of the things that Mike Leiter and I did is we got together with the mayors of those three towns in 2010 and talked through with them uh, what kinds of things they were experiencing as they tried to make sure that uh, Somali immigrants were being incorporated into communities, uh, into their communities, into their schools, and so forth. It's that kind of real life experience that a mayor on the ground, or the you know the sheriff in a particular uh, county, or a police chief in a particular city, brings to bear that can really help federal policymakers because we're several layers removed from the kinds of interactions that are going to be able to identify people who. Uh, maybe at risk of being radicalized. Yep. And what we ought to be doing is making sure that we're learning lessons from those local experts and um, then supporting them to make sure that uh, they're not confronted with this again. Yeah, I mean, that's why I want people to understand when national security experts like you or Mike Leiter or others, you know, when they express concern about the Muslim ban Trump put in place, it's in part because you're trying to engage with these communities and work with them and make people feel assimilated and welcomed so that we can you know, prevent extremism or find it and deal with it before, you know, manifests itself in some sort of act that is leads to a loss of life. I mean, there's a very common sense piece of thinking behind this process. Totally. Uh, very common sense, Tommy, but also we have about 228, 229 years of experience on. No, that's not right. More than 229 yeah. years of experience. Right. Uh, doing it because this is what happens in America, right? This is the melting pot and it allows, you know, as I said, People like you and me who uh, come here by virtue of grandparents who who emigrated to this country too, to get a shot. Yeah, and um, it's uh, it, look, it's it's the secret recipe of uh, America's success: the hunger and the and the opportunity and the clear rules of the game and rule of law. It's unique, like no other place in the world at any other time. Yeah. You mentioned earlier the very complicated sectarian political challenges we face in Iraq with sort of balancing power between Sunnis and Shiites and others and sort of creating a representative government. I actually reached out to you for this interview after reading a story about a coalition strike in Mosul, Iraq, that killed an estimated 200 civilians. And you and I don't have all the details of what happened there, but, you know, it raised the issue of civilian casualties and the kinds of safeguards Obama put in place to prevent those civilian casualties and why. And there are these critics out there who say Obama unduly constrained our military and our intelligence community and hurt the effort to defeat ISIS 
because we couldn't take the gloves off and punch harder. But I'm also hearing you talk about the need to win hearts and minds and, and solve this political situation. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and how you guys viewed that issue when you were making these decisions in government. Yeah, it's really remarkable. But to, but to be honest, with Tommy, the the best experience and advice we ever got uh, was from our military leaders mm-hmm. and the rules of engagement that they insisted on in their own operations. You'll recall that uh, early in his tenure in Afghanistan, uh, Stan McChrystal tried to institute a, a, a regime on rules of engagement that right. ended up being uh, hotly debated and contested at the time, but uh, which I think over the course of time, uh, people recognized was really important to winning hearts and minds. That's right. One of the most proficient yep. terrorist hunters in the history of the world put in stricter rules of engagement. Yeah, so it's it goes to show that, you know, one of the great things about working in the White House is you have uh, the ability to learn from people who have been doing any number of things, whatever the policy is, whatever the outcome is. People have been doing this for a long time, and there's a lot of experience in the government, uh, and you got to draw on it. But the second thing um, I think I'd say on this, Tommy, is we have a lot of force multipliers. You know, Our training is force multiplier, our ethical practices – uh, how we instituted changes, for example, in interrogation and detention techniques. Those are force multipliers. Yep. But our precision is a huge force multiplier. That is to say, when we can demonstrate the precision that we are uh, hitting only what we intend to hit and that what we intend to hit is somebody that we know not only means harm to Americans and to American interests, but in a lot of cases... ISIL means harm to Iraqis and to other Muslims, including Sunni, not just Shia. Right. And so that precision uh, sends a very clear signal to potential fence-sitters, that is to say people who are not sure if they should show their cards and actually stand up against ISIL because they're worried that somehow maybe ISIL wins at the end of the day. We show very clear signal to fence-sitters and to the rest of the population that we made business against those who would threaten us or who would threaten them. But we also mean business in defense of those who share the same interests as we do mm-hmm. and the, and the same, same values. And this goes to a big set of uh, policy improvements that President Obama put in place as it relates to the use of a variety of forms of force at the end of the first term and which remained in place throughout the course of the second term. And this goes to questions around the use of force against CT targets, both in uh, areas of active hostility and otherwise. And, for example, he required, and he gave a big speech about this uh, down at uh, the War College uh, here in Washington, D.C., where he talked about requiring... Uh, for or any project to, to go forward, for us to meet a standard that said there's near certainty of zero civilian casualties. Mm-hmm. So think of that standard. You have to go if you're going to go in and make a uh, proposal for an operation. You have to have near certainty. It's a very high standard right. of zero, not few, but zero civilian casualties. So that makes you run through uh, a very aggressive planning operation, and that increases precision, 
Uh, and as I say, the, the more we increase precision, the greater impact we have in multiplying the, the impact of that force and sending a very clear signal to our opponents and a very clear signal to those who would stand with us, our allies. You're listening to Pod Save the World. Stick around. There's more great show coming your way. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing, sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go, and Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com and enjoy your edible. <laughs> Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Reclaim your time now that you can listen to four weekly ads-free episodes across Pod Save America and Pod Save the World. There's never been a better time to join Cricket's Friend of the Pod subscription community. The marketing people say that listening ads-free saves you up to two hours of ad listening each month. Imagine the possibilities. You know what you can do with two extra hours a week? You can listen, listen to, two, to more podcasts. Exactly. Ah, two more episodes. That's yeah. two more episodes. Yeah. Get more stuff in your brain. Yeah. Get more stuff in that more brain. More stuff and content in there like, yeah, uh, like you're a foie gras. <laughs> Become a member today. Go to cricket.com slash friends now to learn more. Okay, shifting gears a little bit. Like, we're all reading about this Russian hacking stuff and wondering what the hell is going on. I know you can't get into great detail here, and I imagine a ton has been learned since you left the White House. But I was just wondering, what was it like for you guys at the end of the administration when you slowly started learning about Russian interference into the election? And and what your response is to people who say, you know, that Obama should have spoken out and said more to sound the alarm uh, before the election and before it was too late. Yeah, so I think the most uh, clearest indication of uh, the level of concern that we had was the review that the president ordered early this year mm -hmm. to ensure that you know, we got into one place everything we knew about what we thought they were doing. So that uh, obviously was completed in the middle of January. And we thought it was, or I guess the IC thought it was so important that they even produced a an unclassified version of that report and made that available to the public right. to ensure that American people, by the way, whose institutions are at risk because of this activity, understand the nature of the threat. Mm -hmm. 
So I think that's the kind of the culmination of our concern is when the president asked for that document to right. say, let's make sure that the next team – and here's why he asked for it. He said, let's make sure the next team here in this building, in the White House, in the executive agencies, but also up on Capitol Hill has the, our best understanding so that they can take the next step now, which says, okay, here's what happened. Here's what we know about it. We know also that it's going to continue. So what are the steps that we have to take to put in place defenses so that we're not going to experience this again? Yeah. And so, you know, the there's a lot of kind of back and forth now on, you know, who's responsible for what and when. And I'll get to your question on that in a second, Tommy. But we've never really spent a lot of time on those kinds of questions, right? My guess is all that stuff gets sorted out by the historians over the course of, you know, years and decades. Yeah. Our job is to make sure that we arm – the next set of policymakers with the best possible information so that they can make decisions about how to protect this country and its institutions mm -hmm. because that's the name of the game. And I hope that, you know, the contratomps here in Washington can get beyond this kind of finger pointing and get back to what we do know, which is that the Russians tried to interfere in our election. And there's things we can learn about how they did that and why they did that to ensure that we're better protected next time around. Well, yeah, it's really interesting because I remember talking to Jake Sullivan about this, who, you know, was a colleague and friend of ours who worked in the Clinton White House and worked as Joe Biden's national security advisor and then went and over to the Clinton. And a good Minnesotan. State, a great Minnesotan. And uh, he Twins said, are 2-0, by the way. <laughs> and he said he felt like he was wearing a tinfoil hat for months. And I, just, I can't imagine being you guys in this information slowly coming in and being like, what the fuck? I mean, how is this bad spy movie becoming real? But every day it's like we learn another another piece of the puzzle here. Yeah, it is. Um, look, I, th I think it's important to just make sure that we're focused on the facts as as we have them and try to avoid turning this into some kind of political football, which is standard out here, sadly, right. uh, and get back to some muscle memory that says, OK, we can learn lessons from this. We can apply those lessons uh, to ensure that it doesn't happen again. That's what's in the national interest. By the way, that's what taxpayers pay us to do. Uh, so let's let's get to work on it. Then the question, Tommy, really about, you know, why didn't we, to some who have criticized us for not doing more earlier. You know, I think it's really important to focus on that October 7th statement from Jim Clapper and Jay Johnson, the Director of National Intelligence and mm -hmm. the Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, uh, which is a pretty uh, strong statement from them at the time. Yeah, it was. And... The other thing that we thought was important is that we, we really uh, wanted to make sure that there was bipartisan understanding of uh, the nature of the threats. And so we, we went out of our way to be bipartisan uh, and making sure people understood exactly what was happening. And my guess is uh, those things will be uh, debated for some time. Uh, and you can imagine that, you know, we've all, I know I have sat and thought and uh, debate in my own mind whether there's something different I could have done or said. But I, I think we worked this really hard, and I think we thought about it really hard. And in retrospect, I can't think of anything else to do that we uh, didn't do. Yeah, I mean, not only was it a strong statement in its own right, but I know all too well how hard it is to get an unclassified statement vetted by every component of the intelligence community and then released to the public. That is not an easy process. Um, <laughs> and the fact that yeah. you guys were able to do that to begin with, I think, says a lot about the underlying intelligence uh, and the work that went into it. The, the last thing I wanted to ask you about, which is probably the toughest, which is, you know, the humanitarian situation in Syria remains incredibly dire. You have Assad using barrel bombs, targeting hospitals. There was even a chemical weapon strike recently. 
President Trump's response was to point the finger at Obama and say it's his fault for not enforcing the red line on chemical weapons. So I don't want to get into the politics of this because I think this issue is far more important than politics. But I did want to maybe revisit that period of time because you were one of the people in the White House that President Obama confided in during that process and the thinking about whether or not to take airstrikes to hit President Assad's chemical weapons. So I'm hoping you could take us back, you know, maybe to that walk you took during the White House grounds and how people understand the collective thinking of the government and the president as you guys work through the options on, on managing this enormous challenge in Syria. Yeah, so uh, you're right that it's hard, Tommy, and, and uh, it's really painful to see these uh, pictures in the newspaper. And uh, well, painful. I mean, obviously, it's sad yeah. and it's, um, it's heartbreaking. heartbreaking. And uh, you know, so I haven't really talked about the walk, and and uh, you know, I, sure. what I've said is the president gets first shot at that, and if he decides not to tell it, then my guess is I won't either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or maybe I will. I don't know, but. Look, what I've said on this, Tommy, is the the question uh, for us was always force slash credible threat of force to what end? Mm -hmm. What's the policy outcome of that particular policy? And in that regard, I think events of this week and the depravity of the Assad regime in using these weapons against kids, men and women, innocent people, the wisdom of the steps the president took uh, becomes clear. Because recall what the question was at the time was, how do we get Assad to stop using chemical weapons? Mm -hmm. Which until then, he had not acknowledged that he had, did not declare that he had, and we assessed that he had a lot of it. And so because of the credible threat of the use of force, Assad not only acknowledged and declared what he had, but then he gave up vast sums of it, right? Mm-hmm. Peers, uh, and we, I guess we believe for some time that he didn't necessarily give it all up. And the depravity that he demonstrated just earlier this week, which according to press reports, that's all I'm uh, privy to, yeah points up the fact that had he had as large a stockpile as he eventually turned over, the kinds of uh, experiences that we are witnessing this week would have been manifold more. Right. And so that's point one. Point two is then the question becomes, what about extracting a cost from him for the use of these at the time? Well, the first policy goal was to get him to acknowledge that he had them and to get rid of them. Well, we got that. Then the question becomes, well, extract a cost and when? Do you do it before he turns them over? If that's the case, then those things dissipate and they're they're either in his hands or in the hands of even worse actors, some of the terrorist organizations on the ground, Mm -hmm. or risking even more significant escalation from us as a result of the steps that we took. And so I've racked my brains, and I know the president has said this publicly many times, President Obama said this publicly many times, that you know we kept going back at this to find out if there were better options. We assessed that there were not better options than the ones that we exercised. And maybe the next team comes up with better ones. Hmm. But I do believe that this week points up the importance of having gotten rid of the vast sums of, of chemical weapons that he had because uh, what we know is that 
his depravity seems to know no bounds. Yeah. I mean, I, his, his being Assad. Yeah. I, I can't under, like, this may be a dumb question, but I, I don't understand why he would even use chemical weapons because he's not gaining a military advantage here. He's killing a hundred or so civilians, women, children, but he is focusing the attention of the world on the fact that he is such a depraved piece of shit that he would gas families and kids. I just can't get myself to understand the calculus here. Do you guys have any sense of what he's thinking? No, I mean, I don't, I'm not privy to any uh, particular sense of what he's thinking. But look, I mean, Idlib is the last holdout of, or one of the last holdouts of the opposition. He employed these scorched earth tactics in Aleppo uh, yep. to force the opposition out of Aleppo. And he's doing the same thing now. I think, you know, we're we're talking here today on uh, April 6th, I think it mm -hmm. is, Tommy, and there's a very good column from Tom Friedman in the New York Times today that points up the cynicism and depravity of the Assad strategy here, which is basically what he wants to do is to either force the Sunni into submission or to convince the rest of the world that all Sunni uh, are could not be separated from ISIL, that is to say maybe all Sunni are ISIL, leaving him and his Shia backers in Iran, for example, in Hezbollah, in a position where, you know, the rest of the world says, well, you know, we got to take on ISIL, which is a little bit of the danger of the statements that we heard from uh, Secretary Tillerson mm -hmm. and uh, UN Ambassador um, Haley last week. Uh, where we seem to leave the impression that because we could make common cause against ISIL, it would be okay for Assad to stay in power. I think the signal that sends to Sunni throughout the region who don't want to have anything to do uh, with ISIL is, is very troubling. So bottom line is, Tommy, that it's very hard to get in the side, inside the head of Assad given the depravity which, which he's demonstrated, which appears to know no bounds. Yeah, um, but he's just—he he knows one tactic here, and his tactic is his own survival, and he believes that that's dependent on him, either f forcing the Sunni into submission or making clear to the rest of the world that um, if these guys all become extremists, then you know that they ought to join him in the fight against extremists, and it's a very cynical ploy, that's for sure. Yeah. So my last question for you is a little bit of a uh, annoying, open-ended one, but. Uh, you know, you read the newspaper, there's, there's some big ticket items out there, right? You got Xi Jinping's here today. You you see North Korea testing ballistic missiles. You've got Assad gassing people. If you had one last meeting in the Oval Office or the Situation Room with, with President Trump and could give him one last piece of advice, is there anything you'd urge him to focus on or that, you know, the people listening should pay more attention to because it, it worries you most? Well, I never had any meetings with President Trump. Huh. Uh so he would have benefited. Um, it wouldn't be one last meeting with him. <laughs> right. But like one of the things that we did underscore um, when we were leaving is that technology is it's a little bit trite, but the, that the government needs to up its technology game, hmm. and that's true uh, from basically you know procurement, basic kind of common sense. Uh, you know, functional governance standpoint, but it's also true from cyber, you know, bio threats and proliferation standpoint as well. So it's a national security question as well. And so I think that we have to make sure that we're um, making decisions about 
technology and and our use of it in a posture where we find ourselves better informed than you know some of our policymakers necessarily are. Mm-hmm. And this comes you know this manifests in different ways at different times in different policy debates, whether it's you know from encryption to you know the proliferation of new technologies like CRISPR to any number of other uh, questions. But we just have to maintain our leadership in technology that we, you know, we're, we're basically a world leader in this. We have to be mindful, too, of the threats that come with it. Um, we spent a good amount of time today, Tommy, talking about that as it relates to Russia and yeah. uh, the, what we've just experienced. Yep. All these other threats, manifestations are things that are, you know, we did talk to them about. And we made our best case, you know, what I saw throughout the what I saw throughout the transition was people working overtime uh, on top of their day jobs to make sure that their successors are going to be in a position to succeed. Not because we thought they should do exactly what we said, but we wanted to make sure that they had all the information and, and preparation that they'd need to hit the ground running. Right. And so all these other things we did talk about, North Korea, China, uh, Syria, mm-hmm. Iraq, Sudan, and, you know, we got to just make sure we stay on top of them. Yeah. That is incredibly good, thoughtful, nonpartisan advice for anybody working in government. Dennis, thank you for your time. Also, thank you, Kari, Teddy, Liam, Addy, for for Dennis's time. Uh, (laughs) Thank you for everything you did for President Obama and for for me personally as a guy I got to work with you along the way from when you were shoveling driveways in uh, eastern Iowa to the White House Chief of Staff during, uh, during the caucuses, I should say. That wasn't just your job. You weren't just shoveling driveways for fun. Uh, it was for the uh, Iowa caucuses. But thanks, buddy. It was great to talk and, to you. And, she, and the person whose driveway I shoveled still caucused for Secretary Clinton <laughs> and not for, not for President Obama. So uh, uh, well. I, I'm still a little grousy about yeah, that. Yeah, all's well that ends well. That's right. All right, buddy. Thanks, Tommy. Have a great day.